everyone. Quick note before we get started. Uh, not to be a broken record, but I just want to thank everyone again who has supported the show's Patreon page and ordered the new official podcast, Nuanced AF Merchandise, which uh, turns out to be kind of flying off the shelves. I also want to mention something that came up the other day. Uh, as you know, you can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, just about all the usual places. And someone asked me the other day if I got paid more if people listened on, say, Spotify than somewhere else. Now, that's a totally logical question. And it also made me burst out laughing because, as people might not know, independent podcasters don't make a dime from these platforms. The platforms merely provide access to the show, which is great, but it's not like uh, I or most other podcasters have a business relationship with them. Again, it's an understandable confusion, which is why I wanted to take a moment here and say that if you want to support the podcast via these platforms, one thing you can do is leave a rating or a review, preferably positive. If you want to financially help, you can join the show's Patreon page, of course, at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. It gives you lots of perks, including $10 off your first purchase of merchandise. Uh, if you sign up at the $10 a month level or higher, if you pay for the whole year up front, you get two months free. Uh, anyway, right now, Patreon is my only revenue for this project. So it means so much when people join at any level. Um, I, I can't emphasize this enough. It's really hard for me to ask for money. When I was a kid, my parents didn't even want me to go trick-or-treating because it was like begging. So I hate having to talk about it here, but I just want to make clear, Spotify is not paying me. I'm not Joe Rogan, though people do get us mixed up all the time. Uh, second and last order of business. If you are on the social media app Clubhouse, I will be hosting a conversation on Thursday, April 1st with Angel Eduardo, who was my guest on the March 7th edition of the podcast. Uh, Angel is a writer, a visual artist, and a musician who has a lot to say about the new identitarianism and how it's factored into his life as a millennial with immigrant parents and a relatively working class upbringing. This episode drew a ton of positive attention and people wanted to know more about Angel. So he and I will continue our conversation on Clubhouse on April 1st from 8 to 9.30 Eastern time. If you have no idea what Clubhouse is, uh, just Google it. If you're already on it and you're not totally freaked out by it, this room will be a good one to catch, I think. And with that, let's get to this week's interview. We're in this very unfortunate environment, right? Where where uh, this, is, this is not something when I started my academic career, I thought I would ever need to know, right? What, what, what would I need to do uh, if, if a mob was howling for my job? Uh, but, uh, but unfortunately that's the situation we're in and that people are in fact getting, um, harassed and, and getting threatened and, uh, they, they need advice then about how best to, to deal with that. If you've been following the seemingly constant flow of eruptions on college campuses over free speech, you may have noticed that professors are a frequent target of censorship and complaint. 
Sometimes it's because students object to what's being taught, and sometimes it's as trivial as a professor sending a tweet or saying something in a non-professional context that students find, and here's that overused but unavoidable word, problematic. A new organization has been formed to help educators navigate these waters. The Academic Freedom Alliance, housed at Princeton University and made up of scholars from across the political spectrum, seeks to protect academic freedom in a variety of ways, including helping provide legal aid to professors and researchers who find themselves accused of wrong speak. Its chair, Keith Whittington, is my guest this week. Keith is a constitutional law scholar and political science professor at Princeton. He spoke with me about why the AFA came about, how academia has changed over the course of his career, and why it's important to remember that speech suppression comes from the political right as well as the activist left. We also talked about why professors are often temperamentally inclined to apologize or even explain themselves when that's often the worst thing you can do when the mob comes after you. Keith Whittington, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thanks for having me. I was hoping you could just tell us about yourself and your background. You're a professor of politics at Princeton. You're also a constitutional law scholar. But I'm curious how you were shaped by academia, both as a student and as a professor. Like, was was worrying about what you said ever part of the equation for you? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, worrying about what I said was part of the equation. Um, uh, perhaps I should have worried about it more <laughs> on some occasions. Well, you made it this far. You're, you're, you're talking to me. So you yeah, no, exactly. It, it, all, it all worked out at the, in the end. Um, uh, so I, I don't think I really worried very much about academic freedom as such. I think I mostly took that for uh, granted. I uh, didn't think it was very likely that a uh, mob was going to uh, call for my uh, termination or anything like that. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, I'm right of center in my own politics. I write about things that are uh, politically uh, salient uh, and that people care about. Um, and as a consequence, I got a lot of pushback uh, in academia as I was coming up. Um, uh, that was more connected to the substance of what I actually did as an academic. Um, and so uh, I always tried to be pretty careful about um, the kinds of arguments I made and that I thought that they were uh, wholly defensible and and that I could stand up to that kind of uh, scrutiny. Um, but but there was certainly a lot of scrutiny <laughs> over time. And, um, and you know, I, as a consequence, I think this is sort of an experience of a lot of junior faculty who don't yet have tenure anyway. You're, you're always uh, a little cautious about what it is you're uh, saying because you just don't know how it's going to be received. Um, and in my case, the political dimensions of this uh, being uh, part of a sort of fairly small minority uh, in an academic uh, context uh, was was part of the calculation. So you're, I think you're around my age. When were you in college? Like what era? So I was in college. I was an undergraduate at the University of Texas at Austin uh, in the late 1980s um, and in graduate school at Yale University in the early 90s. Okay. So we're about exactly the same age. Uh, when, when you were an undergraduate, say, 
were these dynamics in play? Like, what was the climate, even being a right of center person in Austin at that time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so I was sort of a child of the Reagan revolution. Um, I was uh, very interested in those uh, ideas. And, and as an undergraduate, probably more interested in uh, sort of actual politics uh, than, than I was uh, later, uh, was involved in some of those kinds of uh, activities and debates uh, as an undergraduate. Um, you know, Austin's a fairly liberal town, but on the other hand, Texas, uh, including University of Texas, relatively a conservative place. Um, but even so, among the things I did then was um, uh, write for a conservative student newspaper, and it was a routine problem for us that left-wing activists would steal all the papers and destroy them. Um, <laughs> we did that at my college, too. We would take the, uh, not me personally, but take the, <laughs> there was a con one conservative, like a broadsheet. I don't even think there were enough conservatives to make a, a newspaper or magazine. But yeah, they would literally go like dorm room to dorm room and take all the this, this issue yeah, is cater away from people's front doors. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a pain. It's uh, you know, they, those were expensive uh, to put together, yeah, right. and um, and yeah, you know, and the papers got destroyed. We at one point bought uh, newspaper stands, and they were all destroyed and stolen. Um, uh, so so we wound up sort of reverting back to what we had done originally, which was just hand them out individually in person, uh, and and standing around on the mall handing out uh, uh, conservative papers. Uh, you know, frequently got me yelled at and uh, spat on more than once. Um, uh, you know, our signs would get torn down, as would signs for other conservative groups on campus and the like. You know, so it's a lot of stuff that actually remains very familiar kinds of low-level harassment that occurs uh, of conservative student groups um, on, on college campuses. I sort of took those as annoyances, but sort of par for the course, apparently, as to how, how these things operated. Um, you know, and I certainly never experienced instances of um, actual meetings getting disrupted or speakers being shouted down or things like that. So um, some of these more recent, uh, much more, I think, aggressive and consequential um, actions do seem... Um, uh, new to my experience and uh, more more disturbing about what the state of student speech on campus is. Right. So I'm curious sort of what you see as the timeline, because I mean, I think, you know, for a lot of us who follow these things, we started noticing uh, deplatforming of speakers and just, you know, more, more um, sort of extremist activism on campuses like around 2014 or so. But were you starting to notice it earlier? Have you been in academia your whole career? I have. So I graduated from Yale in 95. Um, uh, I taught for a couple of years at Catholic University of America in DC, and then I've been at Princeton ever since. And so um, certainly I think, uh, you know, Princeton is relatively good about these things. And so we've, we've had some incidents on our campus, but not uh, a lot, um, certainly not a lot compared to a lot of other campuses. Um, uh, but I do think there's a definite upsurge of those kinds of, uh, problems, uh, you know, and, and they initially were problems confronting student speech, um, and, and events that students organized. 
um, on campuses. And that seems like about the right time frame when we really started seeing more of an uptick of these things. Uh, and part of what I was struck by, and it's possible, well, I should say, it's possible that these things were occurring at an earlier point um, and, and people just didn't notice as much. I Man, one thing that has also changed relatively recently is everybody has a, a video recorder in their pocket um, and, and, and ways of publicizing that. And so um, we're just much more aware of every little incident that occurs on campuses um, at this point in ways just just wouldn't have been true when I was an undergraduate, for example, or certainly uh, even when I began my career, such that uh, you could have speakers being shouted down and just no one would notice except for the people on that campus itself. And so it's really hard, I think, to get much of a handle on uh, how much change has actually occurred over time, um, just because the the data just isn't there to, to have a good feel for that. Oh, yeah, that's that's a, a really good point. Well, I want to hear about exactly what the AFA does, but just so our audience has some sense of context in case there's anyone left who has absolutely no idea what we're talking about. I just want to list a couple of uh, recent or more egregious examples of professors being uh, censored uh, and in many cases suspended or fired. So there was a case from last fall. I think this got a lot of attention. Um, it was Greg Patton at the University of Southern California, who was teaching uh, a language course in in Chinese. He was discussing public speaking patterns and the filler words that people use to space out their ideas like um or et cetera. Uh, the professor mentioned that the Chinese use a word that is pronounced like nega, N-E-G-A, as a filler word. Okay, And some students reported him to the administration because it sounds like a certain other word and he was suspended. Um, you know, and it's it's funny, like... <laughs> This goes, I, it, I'm, I'm reminded back in like 1999, remember the, the Niggardly case? Yes. <laughs> From at, a, at a, I can't remember what the university was. Oh no, it wasn't even a university. It was like a government official of some sort, wasn't it? I think um, that's right. Yeah. Actually. Right. I don't remember the details of it either, but yeah. I think that's right. Somebody used the, this is, this is a word um, that has absolutely nothing to do with the N word. It is spelled N-I-G-G-A-R-D-L-Y. Um, I think it means parsimonious. Right. Something like and, that. And it has a different etymology. It comes yes. from a completely different source. That's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, and that was like uh, a, a huge brouhaha, but that was back in 1999. Uh, so we have been having these sorts of uh, eruptions over misunderstood words. Um, but, you know, this stuff, this stuff goes on and on and on. Uh, last August, there was a professor at University of Missouri who asked a student where he was from. Uh, the student said he was from Wuhan. And um, I mean, I guess this is a bad joke. The, the professor said, Wuhan, well, let me get my mask on. Okay, not, not a great joke, but um, he was uh, suspended. The, the uh, student uh, complained and uh, the professor, even though he apologized, he was suspended. So, you know, there are, as I'm sure you know, dozens, if not hundreds of examples of this kind of thing. So, like, is this, is it out of this directly that, that the Academic Freedom Alliance arose? It is these kinds of incidents, um, and uh, they are, I think, becoming uh, more common, um, uh, and, and they come from a lot of different directions. So both of those examples involve students who uh, were offended by things that happened in class, um, which is, uh, I think, uh, 
probably becoming more common of students objecting to this, although this has a very long history. Uh, the American Association of University Professors was founded in the early 20th century uh, in order to advocate for um, principles of, of academic freedom and ultimately to call for a tenure system uh, to protect faculty from being uh, fired. And a lot of their early cases involved similar kinds of things where students would object uh, to what a faculty member was doing in class because they found it offensive, um, often because it was more conservative student body and the faculty were uh, more liberal. Um, and so students thought uh, the faculty were insufficiently religious, uh, for example, um, and, and would object to university administrators and to alumni who uh, would then turn around and fire faculty uh, for, for that kind of thing. Um, so this is a long problem of, of uh, offending student sensibilities um, in the classroom, and, and we're, we're hitting that now. Um, I think the other thing that's becoming uh, very common is um, faculty saying controversial things uh, in a public forum on social media, for example, um, and then uh, it going viral, attracting lots of attention and pressure being put on a school uh, to fire the faculty member for um, having said something controversial on Twitter. And it's something in a completely non-academic context, by the way. Like their private Twitter, they like the wrong tweet, I think, even in one case. Uh, yeah, in like some extreme Twitter. cases. I mean, and, and and there's a range as to what this looks like. So so in some case, right, I mean, these are certainly private Twitter accounts. These are not some kind of official or institutional Twitter account. Uh, they're people's private um, uh, speech in that sense. Um, but, but some of that private speech is uh, far removed from their... Their academic work and uh, just as a reflection of their personal political opinions, for example. So uh, we recently uh, had uh, a controversy erupt around a uh, scientist, actually I think she's a social scientist, an archaeologist um, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, um, who uh, tweeted some rather unfortunate things um, uh, celebrating Rush Limbaugh's death, um, uh, which people took very badly and then called for her to be fired as a consequence of that. Um, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that's simply a matter of somebody's personal political opinions. They vented on Twitter like many people do, um, uh, but it comes back to haunt them at, at their job. Um, in other cases, though, we also see people posting things on social media that are more closely related to their actual scholarly expertise. Um, and sometimes... Uh, elaborating on that in sort of politically insensitive ways, uh, as often occurs on Twitter, uh, but sometimes uh, being perfectly reasonable in terms of trying to share uh, with the public um, things they know as a consequence of their expertise. Uh, but it turns out the things they know are controversial, um, and the topics they study are controversial, such that to the extent there's blowback uh, then on those faculty for um, those kinds of posts, um, I, you know, in that case, it's it's very tied up with the very thing that we're paying them to do as as scholars, even though in this context they were expressing it um, in this sort of private uh, venue. Um, and and I think those things are are very disconnected. Then the possibility somebody might be held to account for sharing in public uh, things that they have scholarly expertise on is somehow separated from maintaining a rich scholarly uh, intellectual environment on a college campus. Uh, just doesn't just doesn't work, and so we're we're seeing a lot of these episodes uh, now as well, which which really just reflects the rise of social media and and how people use it, and the fact that now professors who have long held controversial views of one sort or another uh, now not only express those in the local letter to the 
newspaper editor or in a local town meeting or at their local bar, uh, but instead they're now expressing it uh, to a global audience um, on an internet platform. Um, and the result is, uh, in some cases, people actually are fired. In other cases, they're suspended. In many cases, they're being threatened uh, with being fired and suspended as a consequence of, of those kinds of posts. I think it's important to note, too, that it's not like this is just coming from uh, very far left progressives. The, the example that you cited, the professor who was sort of tweeting in a celebratory way about Rush Limbaugh's death, I'm assuming it was conservative students who uh, came down on her for that. Well, in this case, it was sort of conservative uh, activists as much as anything. So uh, local state politicians got involved and started calling on the university to fire her. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, was one of the ones who amplified uh, that um, uh, particular incident. And so uh, there are sort of organized uh, activists on the right who um, uh, try to make hay from uh, the, these kind of Twitter posts uh, from faculty on the left. Um, we we do see similar kinds of things happening, though, from from conservative professors who might post things on social media as as well. Um, but it does emphasize that, um, uh, and one reason why the Academic Freedom Alliance was formed in the way that it was formed is this is a pervasive problem that affects everybody across the board um, politically. It's not that left-wing professors are particularly vulnerable or right-wing professors are particularly vulnerable. Um, uh, I think really at this point, all academics are vulnerable because the attacks are coming from all kinds of directions. Um, and you never know when you might step on a landmine and get blown up. So tell us how the Academic Freedom Alliance is set up. How is it organized? How do you, what does somebody like call you up and say, I need help? Do, like, do you function like, you know, the ACLU or something or how they, how they use uh, function? So, so we function a little bit like the early uh, AUP and, and somewhat like the ACLU uh, does as well. And that our, our goal, we are, we are set up initially as a membership organization um, and of, of faculty. And so we have uh, brought in a diverse group of founding members um, to uh, help launch us. And our, our first commitment is um, that we will uh, defend the speech rights of those who are members of the organization. Um, and uh, that defense may take the form of public and private statements of support um, for that individual in which we try to encourage university leaders to do the right things when these controversies emerge and try to explain to them what we believe the right thing is um, in these contexts. Um, and then also to provide uh, resources so that those uh, individual faculty member can get uh, legal advice um, uh, when they are trying to navigate these situations and, if necessary, um, the, raise the possibility of litigation in order to vindicate their rights if, if they uh, wind up being violated by the university. Um, we also anticipate sort of proactively taking on some cases that extend beyond the members. Um, we expect to grow the membership over time, so we become a large organization and encompass a lot more people. Um, certainly right now, it's a relatively small group, um, uh, even though you know, with over 200 people, it's bigger than we initially imagined it might be at this stage. Um, but still, a relatively small group, and there are lots of people who are far more vulnerable than the people we've uh, recruited into the organization at this point, um, people who are adjuncts, people who are just beginning their academic careers, um, and those people need assistance. And um, uh, we want to be able to take on those cases and, and help come to their defense uh, when, when they need it. Can you name any recent cases or 
any cases that are most emblematic of your mission? Well, at this point, we're mostly just getting started. And so um, uh, we, we, and in part, this is sort of uh, the fact that we had um, uh, some ideas that, that some of us have been kicking around. Um, uh, mostly some of us, some of us at Princeton University um, had been talking about these kinds of issues and, and what we might do um, to help um, uh, uh, defend these principles uh, more effectively and also uh, help people understand them uh, better than they do now. Um, uh, but we also wound up then eventually um, uh, gaining access to some donors who were willing to put a little money into it. And as a consequence, uh, started seeming like we could put some of these ideas into practice. Um, it's taken a while just organizationally to get to where we are uh, uh, now. Uh, we did um, because we had access to the funds even before we really organized, uh, we were able to provide some assistance, uh, for example, to uh, Dorian Abbott, who is a professor at the University of Chicago, um, had, give a had given a public presentation uh, questioning aspects of uh, affirmative action. Um, and there was a uh, petition that I believe was organized primarily by graduate students uh, to have him uh, dismissed uh, for uh, having given such a presentation. Um, University of Chicago, uh, like Princeton, has a very strong uh, free speech uh, commitments built into uh, their governing documents. Um, and so it seemed like an obvious case uh, to us in which a, a faculty member was being uh, threatened with violations of uh, contractual rights he had at his particular university. Um, uh, we provide some assistance to him as he sort of navigated that controversy. And as we would expect quite quickly, um, the University of Chicago uh, leadership uh, uh, came down quite clearly in saying uh, that, of course, he was protected in, in what he had um, said, and he was not going to face any sanction from, from the university for it, even if some of the students found it controversial. Yeah, University of Chicago has been uh, a leader, I think, administratively uh, in terms of protecting free speech rights and kind of standing up to students. Although I feel like I heard that that's maybe changing. Do they get a new president or? What? Uh, they're about to have a new president, okay. so they are they are undergoing a administrative uh, change, and you never know what a new president's going to um, uh, bring. It's um, uh, Chicago has been extremely good on these issues. It's sort of in keeping with their uh, long-term culture. Um, but the but the, pre the what is now an out the outgoing president um, had um, encouraged the formation of a faculty group to draft uh, what became known as the Chicago Statement, um, uh, committing to a set of really traditional free speech principles that largely mirror American constitutional law. It was drafted by a, a First Amendment scholar at the Chicago Law School, uh, Jeffrey Stone. Um, uh, Princeton faculty pretty quickly uh, adopted the exact same Chicago statement in part in order to incorporate that into our own governing documents, in part in order to encourage a national conversation about the importance of these principles. Um, the Chicago president has been very vocal um, in defending uh, these these ideals, but, but he's been unusual uh, among American university presidents on that front. Um, our president at Princeton, uh, Chris Eisgruber, who, um, uh, when he was on the faculty, was a, a First Amendment scholar. He primarily studied religious liberty. Uh, he's been very vocal about these issues. Um, and has taken a very strong stance about the importance um, of academic freedom um, to the operation of universities. Uh, but it's really remarkable to me how few university presidents 
governments are willing to um, take that kind of stance uh, in public. Um, a, a lot of them recognize that those principles are controversial on their own campuses as well as potentially off campuses. And um, I think far too many university presidents just prefer to avoid that controversy and not talk about it. Uh, rather than uh, speak up on behalf of what really are very fundamental values to how the university uh, operates. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is the obvious question. This is the elephant in the room. I mean, it's so basic. Why aren't these leaders leading? I mean, I I, I think that most uh, I'm sh- I'm sure you are familiar with the images from Evergreen State College. I think this was back in in yeah. 2017. I mean, this is a case that gets talked about a lot. I'm sure a lot of listeners of this show are familiar with it, but you know, in addition to Brett Weinstein, the evolutionary biologist getting uh run off of campus by student protesters, George Bridges, who was the president of the college at that time, was effectively held hostage in his own office, right? I mean, student protesters kind of stormed the administrative offices, uh, were sort of engaging him in a struggle session from which he could not escape. I think he had to like ask permission to go to the bathroom or something. I mean, that's obviously uh, a fringe example, but like, what what is your diagnosis? What is wrong with these administrators that they can't like act like grownups in the face of a handful <laughs> of 20 year olds? Uh, so I wish I knew because maybe if, if one had a better understanding of what was going wrong, it'd be, uh, uh, easier to fix. Um, it's not entirely clear to me what's, what's going on. I think partially, I do think to some degree, uh, a lot of university presidents assume the problem wasn't that bad and they, and they did have a wake up call, uh, with events like Evergreen events, like, uh, Charles Murray being shouted down at Millbury college. Um, I think a lot of universities recognize that um, uh, that that's a bad sign, that that it'd be a horrible black eye for their own institution if something like that were to happen um, at, at theirs. Um, and so I think some university presidents started to come around to thinking this is important and maybe we should be doing something about it. Um, at the same time, though, I think a lot of university presidents recognize that there's um, at best, uh, mixed feelings about these principles um, on college campuses. A lot of students are hostile to it. A lot of the younger faculty uh, in particular are quite hostile to traditional principles of free speech and academic freedom. And I think a lot of university presidents would prefer uh, to keep their heads down and just hope that they don't have an incident on their own campus and and so don't want to get distracted from other things they want to accomplish by um, inviting controversy by talking about it. Um, I think it's a very short-sighted strategy, um, likely to be ineffective, but um, I, I do think a lot of them are just hoping that they can avoid talking about this and, and it'll just go away on its own. Um, and then when these incidents actually occur, I think they just feel under tremendous pressure to give in to those who would like to suppress speech. And um, and that pressure can come from a lot of directions. To some degree, it can come from students. It can come from some of the faculty. Um, it can come from alumni and donors and politicians and people um, off campus. Um, and uh, I think university presidents feel genuinely uh, threatened by um, that kind of pressure. Um, I think they uh, sometimes feel that their own job security is on the line um, when they're trying to navigate those controversies. And um 
uh, you know, often the path of least resistance is to throw the individual faculty member under the bus uh, rather than actually stand up and, and defend them. In a case like that, would an individual faculty member come to you at the Academic Freedom Alliance and say, help me, advise me? What would the procedure be? Uh, we would hope so. Um, uh, so hopefully uh, some of them will contact us. I think um, uh, we sometimes will have to contact them um, if we hear about either through press reports or through um, other members uh, calling it to our attention um, and and offer assistance and, and what assistance we can. I mean, I think there are going to be occasions when uh, the professors involved uh, would prefer to keep a low profile, perhaps not want um, any outside involvement, particularly there may be circumstances where they feel like they're already uh, handling the situation uh, well on their own uh, and don't need further assistance. Um, I think others will welcome um, the help uh, if it's being if it's being offered. And um, so our hope is that we can mobilize in some of these situations in a timely way so we can get involved um, when we're still pretty early in the controversy. And as a consequence, there may be opportunities to try to head it off and, and prevent it from getting worse um, and to help out the faculty members while, while there's sort of still time to get out of the situation as, as effectively and efficiently as possible. Um, I, I do think if you let these things go on, that, that often the pressures build on universities, um, uh, you get missteps by the faculty member that can sometimes uh, dig a deeper hole uh, for themselves. Um, and, you know, it's, it's ultimately, I think, less effective and meaningful to come in after the fact and, and uh, condemn a university for having made a bad decision. Uh, what's much more effective, I hope, is to intervene early on and try to get the, lead them to make a good decision. Um, and so we, we would much prefer to be in the business of helping people um, uh, reach better outcomes uh, in the midst of these controversies rather than uh, find ourselves coming in after the fact and and telling people that they misbehaved. When you say misstep by a faculty member, what does that look like? Um, well, so I think it can be various things, um, uh, inc including I think it's often a problem if faculty members um, apologize for what they've done. Um, yes. that they come out and sort of <laughs> issue sort of public or sometimes private a hostage note. confessions. It's the Absolutely, the perfunctory hostage letter. No, and I think um, you know I think most lawyers would tell you that if you find yourself in these situations, that the more you talk, the worse off you're going to be, right? And so, uh, and so, uh, whereas faculty, I think their natural instinct is to think they can talk their way out of. It, right, and they, they can make things better oh, if they simply right. talk about it enough. And and of course, to the extent that there are people who seem genuinely upset, you want to, I think, quite naturally um, uh, make them less upset. And so, it's a, a very human instinct to want to apologize and and uh, and and try to iron out the situation. Um, but but. But one result of that is, I think, you put yourself in a more fragile position. Um, in terms of basically having admitted that you did something wrong, um, and as a consequence, uh, you're not on as firm of, of legal grounds as you otherwise would be, um, uh, whether we're talking about your your own particular employment contract or, or something else. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I know. I, I it always seems to me like people who are trying to navigate this landscape need to like have their own version of Miranda rights, like. You have the right to remain silent. And in fact, everything you, anything you say can and will be used against you because that's exactly what happens in these situations. 
Yeah, one of the things we're sort of in the process of putting together now is is actually sort of a set of recommendations to faculty. If you, if you find yourself in this situation, what should you do? Um, uh, it's a, so that people, uh, you know, as you say, sort of know their rights and and also have some do's and don'ts about what's the uh, best thing to do. Um, you know, even before you might have legal assistance, even before other people are. are rushing in there to help you out. Um, but even as you're trying to manage this on your own, um, you know, what are the mistakes you ought to avoid? What are the things you can do positively that would actually improve, um, improve your situation? And, um, uh, yeah, I think people need those advice. I mean, if, we're in this very unfortunate environment, right? Where, where, uh, this is, this is not something when I started my academic career, I thought I would ever need to know, right? What, what, what would I need to do, uh, if, if a mob was howling for my job? Uh, but, uh, but unfortunately that's the situation we're in. Um, and that, um, uh, people are in fact getting, um, harassed and, and, uh, getting threatened and, uh, they, they need advice then about how best to, to deal with that. And, th- and that can take lots of different forms in terms of, of what that looks like. So it might take the form of the kind of case I mentioned with Dorian Abbott in which students are petitioning the university to, uh, fire you, um, but it may also take the form of uh, you're getting death threats um, on your voicemail on your on your office phone, um, and so there's a there's a wide range of uh, trouble people can find themselves in um, that all stem from uh, they're simply exercising their speech rights as as faculty members, um, and uh, so there's no one size fits all I think as to how best to respond to those situations, but um, but. But when those controversies arise, uh, most faculty are pretty unfamiliar with them. Um, and they, they are very unexpected. They don't know what they ought to be doing. Um, they're taken aback by as far outside their normal routines about uh, what academic life has looked like to them up to that moment. Um, and so uh, knowing that they're not alone, uh, knowing that there are people willing to offer advice and assistance um, can, can be just extraordinarily helpful in, in helping them navigate that kind of situation. I want to emphasize again that this is not something that's happening solely among people on the left. I mean, it gets very delicious to constantly talk about these examples, you know, far left student activists uh, coming down on perfectly liberal, (laughs) very far left in their day uh, professors. But, you know, as you mentioned earlier, this does happen on the right, Um, you know, whether it's people in government or state officials or, you know, just right-leading people on campuses, uh, trying to censure people on the left. But do you have a sense, I don't know if you actually have data, but like what proportion of these cases have to do with people, leftists censoring people not as left as them? Is it like Um, a lot more? It's a a sizable number. Um, uh, The data on this is not great in general. Some people have tried to collect uh, data on uh, these incidents, um, which mostly relies on media reports um, of what's happened. And and frankly, there's a, there's a lot of these kinds of incidents where there are no media reports and no one really knows besides uh, maybe the people most immediately involved. Um, so, so all the data we have is pretty imperfect. But, um, uh, but I think the, the best data we have suggests that uh, conservative uh, faculty are disproportionately affected by these. Um, they're a pretty tiny percentage of uh, the overall 
um, professoriate, uh, and yet they um, do take up a, a larger percentage of those who um, are being harassed and threatened in various ways. Um, but but that means still a very sizable number and and an absolute majority probably um, of the uh, faculty who face these kinds of events um, are from the left themselves. Um, and sometimes right. they're confronting. Uh, often on-campus groups uh, that are further to their left, um, but sometimes they're facing um, off-campus groups that are uh, from the political right. Oh, okay, okay. I wonder too, if if you are a professor who considers yourself on the left and then other leftists are attacking you, if you're more likely to react in a way that is gonna not work in your favor ultimately. I mean, the essence of cancel culture I was like, like you you get canceled by your own side, you know. I think that's Secondly. right. I do think the temptation is is uh, much stronger when it's uh, seemingly your own side that's complaining. Um, and so it's, it's easier to imagine that you can mollify them. It's easier to imagine that you ought to uh, because because it's, it's easy to think that they, um, uh, are are being reasonable in some sense, and and that their offense is genuine, and and you can respond to it in a way that will make things better. Um, I think it's often uh, easier to assume that's not true if you're being attacked from the um, other end of the ideological divide, um, uh, where maybe you imagine the attacks are less reasonable. You imagine there's less you can do to uh, respond to it effectively, and so maybe there's more of a temptation to dig in. Um, in those circumstances, uh, rather than apologize, I think it may also depend some on what the nature of the group is that's um, uh, coming to attack you. And so, I think almost all professors are going to have some instinct to think that if students are the ones attacking them, um, that they ought to try to make that better with and and deal with the students as such. Right? That that you. Uh, I don't think any of us uh, want to be offending the students. Um, uh, we all think that we're trying to educate and build a good relationship with the students. Um, and so I suspect almost uh, regardless of the particular ideology of either the students involved or the faculty involved, uh, there's going to be a real temptation that if uh, the problem you're confronting is a bunch of angry students, um, that you're going to be trying to um, apologize to them, uh, try to uh, mend fences um, as best you can. That's like or reason be- with them. Yeah, try to have reason. a dialogue. Well, <laughs> always, always, always that, that possibility as well. No, exactly <laughs> right. Whereas I think the, the instinct is probably going to be different if instead what it is is a Twitter mob that's being organized against you. Um, and, and really it's the university president is getting lots of angry phone calls uh, from outside groups um, complaining about you. Um, I suspect faculty, regardless of their own ideology, are probably less likely to think, okay, the thing I ought to do in these circumstances is go out and explain myself or, or apologize or, or something like that. And so um, it probably depends a little bit on how close you are to the um, people that are attacking you, uh, not only ideologically, but also just in terms of your relationship to them uh, on the campus community and professionally um, as to uh, what your natural instincts are as to how to respond to these, these kind of events. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure people who go into academia, people who become professors, especially in the humanities, they would just be more likely to have a temperament that was about engagement, right? Rather than just avoidance. Sure. No, um, that's the natural instinct, I think, in general, right? I mean, it's um, uh, certainly for academics. I mean, it's one thing about both forming this group and as I've been sort of doing other things on on this kind of topic is is there's an element of being a natural optimist if you're an academic um, in that uh, 
you, you sort of assume that if you can reason with somebody, uh, you can persuade them uh, to, uh, and you can you can lead them to better uh, conclusions than they start with, and you can lead them to be more sophisticated about uh, what they're doing. And um, so you always assume there's sort of an opportunity for education and persuasion, um, uh, yeah, no matter how much experience suggests maybe that's not true. Uh, and, and that sort of is what leads you into this profession. It's sort of the heart and soul of the profession. And so it is going to be a very natural instinct to, right. to want to reason with people, even though they might be screaming at you. Well, and and on that, I mean, we have this idea that this is limited to humanities departments. I mean, we see these kinds of situations playing out. English departments, I guess, political science. Uh, but, you know, are we seeing this in engineering programs, business schools? Like, is that starting to change? That it's I, just, I, do, like, I do think it's starting to change. English yeah, there was certainly majors. a time, I think, um, when uh, faculty on other parts of campus uh, might look across at the humanities and social sciences and think, boy, you people have a problem. But but fortunately, it has nothing to do with me uh, because none of this affects uh, what's happening on my side of campus. Um, I think a lot of people are getting a wake-up call on that front now. Um, I think people in the sciences uh, and in other sort of professional school settings, uh, business schools, law schools, medical schools, um, are all starting to realize uh, that these same kinds of conflicts can arise uh, in, in their own uh, parts of campus as well. Um, and we're seeing more and more of these kind of cases arising um, uh, in, in other parts of campus. And so um, uh, people are starting to come around um, and recognize that, that they've They've got a problem also. They have a stake uh, in what the solution looks like um, also. Um, uh, we brought uh, people in particular from the sciences uh, we've been trying to bring into the group. In part, sciences work differently than the rest of academia. The issues are not only are the topics sub su subject-wise different, but sort of how they operate professionally is somewhat different. And so their, their experiences of these things are a little distinctive and unique, and it's useful to have experience people with real experience um, in, in labs and the like and, and how they operate in order to really appreciate uh, what these conflicts look like. Um, but we've had a fair number of people from the sciences reaching out and, and uh, recognizing they have problems and, and appreciating a group like this. Um, law schools at one point seemed sort of immune from some of these uh, conflicts. Um, law schools, after all, uh, where you're trying to teach students to listen to people who disagree with you and argue reasonably about um, about things that are often very yeah. controversial and difficult. Think um, like lawyers. So think like lawyers. As but, a matter of fact. But increasingly, lawyers are law, law schools are having more and more of these troubles as well. Um, and so uh, uh, we have a fair number of, of law professors in the group, in, in part because they are naturally sympathetic to these uh, principles, um, but also because they uh, are seeing in their own law schools that this is becoming an increasing problem uh, for them as well. Right. I noticed that you have uh, Janet Hawley on your board. She's one of the Harvard law professors who's been outspoken about federal overreach around sexual assault adjudication procedures as they were laid out under Title IX. Um, yeah. Do issues in that sort of uh, realm fold into what you're doing at all? Um, I mean, we're talking about, you know, speed, we're talking about yeah. sort of curriculum, but just in terms of people. Um, feeling sort of unsafe, uh, violated, uncomfortable. How does that 
play into what you're doing? Well, we're trying to keep our, our mission fairly narrow um, so that we're focused on academic and free speech issues. Um, there are certainly a lot of other issues surrounding academia that um, deserve deserve attention, um, but uh, we're hoping not to uh, drift off into them, including things like uh, Title IX issues and, and what kinds of procedural protections faculty ought to have under those circumstances. Um, but it's also true that there's probably not a, a impermeable barrier between these things. Um, so I think increasingly we're seeing instances in which uh, Title IX proceedings are being weaponized to use against faculty that you disagree with politically. Um, and so charges get filed. The procedures are often not very good. Um, faculty are being uh, harassed um, through these mechanisms. Um, but it's all just a pretext for the fact that um, uh, people don't like what it is you're saying. Um, so uh, we may be drawn into um, uh, some kinds of uh, cases involving Title IX proceedings, for example. Um, they're certainly somewhat related uh, sets of issues, um, but, but we are trying to keep our focus as much as possible on, on free speech as such. I want to just talk with you about free speech more broadly. You wrote a book about free speech. This is very much your wheelhouse. Are you a free speech absolutist? What does that mean to you? Uh, so I am a little skeptical that anyone is a free speech absolutist. Um, uh, and I, I ha often have a hard time even understanding what people uh, mean when they when they say it. Um, uh, I, I'm teaching a free a seminar now, uh, an undergraduate seminar on free speech and the law. And, and one of my starting points is uh, if you actually pay attention to the law, the con American constitutional law surrounding free speech, um, it's quite obvious that there, there are no absolutes here. Uh, there's all kinds of exceptions uh, that we have long recognized to uh, what people say and that and circumstances in which people can be legally punished for uh, what they say. Um, American constitutional law is distinctive in that um, uh, those are pretty small categories. And so we try to uh, limit as much as possible the ways in which people can be punished uh, for things they say in order to create as much space as possible uh, for people um, to speak out. Um, but, uh, you know, and for some people, I think that that by itself just is a form of absolutism, just to say, well, really, what we're talking about is very robust protections. Um, but but even those very robust protections in the American constitutional law of context, for example, are, are not absolute. If you libel somebody, uh, you can still get in legal trouble. If you threaten somebody, uh, you can still get in legal trouble. If you harass somebody, uh, you can still get uh, in legal trouble. Um, there, there are things you can say, things you can do with words um, in which you can be held legally to account. And likewise, on university campuses, there are things you can uh, say that uh, pr quite properly um, can lead you uh, to be sanctioned by your employer. And moreover, that includes stuff that's not just a function of being illegal um, uh, under a general uh, statute um, or running into the boundaries of First Amendment law, um, but but reflect the boundaries of academic freedom itself. So, for example, when I'm teaching in a classroom, part of what I'm supposed to be doing is teaching the subject matter, not teaching irrelevant things. And so if an engineering professor walks into class and dedicates uh, his class to talking about the 2020 presidential election, uh, he's behaving in an unprofessional manner and can be reasonably sanctioned by his university uh, for um, uh, 
using that captive audience to do things uh, that are inappropriate for the context. Likewise, if an engineering professor walks in the classroom and conveys to the students professionally incompetent knowledge about engineering, um, he can likewise be held um, uh, liable for, for. Oh, that's a good point. I never thought of that. Sort of like malpractice. Yeah, absolutely right. And so, and so, in some ways, the the speech that faculty have in some context is is definitely more limited than what we think about from the First Amendment context. From a First Amendment context, I can hold any kind of opinion I want, no matter how misguided or stupid that opinion might be. Um, but we expect professors to actually be experts in some things. And so uh, walking into your classroom, uh, trying to publish in your scholarship uh, things that are wholly misguided from a professional perspective, uh, it's just an indication of professional incompetence. Um, and universities, quite rightly, uh, have an interest in trying to weed out people who are professionally incompetent uh, rather than uh, protect them. And how is it that professors with tenure are getting, are they actually being fired? Like how, how, how do they, how are they getting around this? Uh, in some cases, although it is true that, that faculty who are not yet tenured um, are far more vulnerable than tenured faculty are. Um, and uh, we certainly see examples of uh, adjunct faculty, faculty who are on uh, semester by semester contracts, course by course uh, contracts, who sometimes are fired in the midst of a semester um, and yanked out of a classroom in a class that they're teaching uh, mid semester because of something that they said that was controversial and people found objectionable for one reason or another. Um, more common than that, though, and and uh, far more difficult to deal with um, are instances in, we, in which people's contracts simply are not renewed. Um, and so they're just told, uh, sorry, we don't have any courses for you next semester. Um, and, and the real reason is because you did something controversial that we don't like. Um, but universities don't need to say that. And, and it's hard to pin down uh, that that's actually what's going on. Tenured faculty can be uh, sanctioned in various ways, um, uh, but it is much more difficult um, to do it. So they have more procedural protections. Um, it's easier to uh, uh, imagine uh, filing a lawsuit to uh, vindicate your rights if you're fired unjustly uh, with tenure. Um, so tenure is an important part of how you uh, protect um, academic freedom and speech rights for faculty, ultimately. Um, but an awful lot of faculty don't have it. Um, and as a consequence, they, they're more vulnerable than those who do. Right. Increasingly, uh, they're relying on adjuncts and untenured co you know, contract faculty. And the, like, the thing is that people are being very unimaginative in their curriculum. I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with an English professor uh, at a big state university. Uh, and he said uh, that he used to teach Lolita and he wouldn't even bother anymore. And his exact words were, it's just not worth it. Yeah, no, there's a lot of that. I mean, it's um, a, f a faculty coming conclusion that um, uh, the likelihood of there being some controversy um, and some pushback and some kind of backlash to uh, to their teaching is too great. And so you make choices um, about how you teach, what you teach, um, in order to avoid uh, those potential controversies. Um, and, and you see it all across the, the university where um, people are constantly sort of thinking about the syllabus and, and what readings they're assigning, what topics they're covering, and, and starting to think about, okay, what's the worst case scenario here? What might students object to? Um, and is it worth it um, to... Um, uh, teach this particular um, uh, 
uh, item um, if the result is uh, the students are going to threaten me, they're going to be yelling, I'm going to get a lot of bad press, it's going to eat up, at the, at the very least, it's going to eat up my semester and I'm going to spend all my, all my time and energy worrying about this, um, even if it doesn't result in my getting fired or something. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not hard to think about how, what kind of dramatic effects that might have on uh, what actual education looks like, um, that there are books you don't teach in English um, uh, classes simply because uh, students might react badly to them and people think it's safer not to bother teaching them. Um, there are topics you don't discuss uh, in philosophy uh, because they're uh, going to be too controversial. Some students might object um, and it may raise uh, difficulties for you. Like, what would that be? What would be a, a topic in philosophy that? Well, philosophy um, at the moment is currently being riled by um, debates about identity of various sorts, um, and so uh, there are debates about gender identity, there are debates about racial identity, um, uh, sexual identity that are uh, philosophically uh, interesting and important, but. Um, but obviously touch on social issues that are controversial and, and things that students find uh, that they have deep feelings about. Um, and uh, that can create real difficulties for the philosophy classroom, but also has consequences for scholarship. There's, um, there's ongoing battles now about um, what people can and can't publish and what kinds of conferences people can and can't hold, talking about transgender issues, uh, for example, um, that is... Uh, uh, it seems to be roiling philosophy much more than it is other disciplines, uh, in particular in part because I think there's still more disagreement in philosophy and, and some people who are still more willing to um, take on the conventional wisdom or what is con has become conventional wisdom. Oh, other the, other, the other disciplines have been totally captured. Yeah, I mean, if you're, you're so certainly yeah. in women's studies departments, <laughs> those, those are not live Gender's, issues. Gender studies. Yeah. There's no women's studies anymore. Well, that's gender, increasingly, gender right? Studies. So, yes. yeah, or sexuality studies and the likes, they vary. But it's, um, uh, but, you know, and certainly in some disciplines, um, there's such a consensus on these issues that you don't even get um, much debate. Philosophy is an area in which they're sort of congenitally more likely to argue with each other uh, than might be true in some other uh, disciplines. Um, and there is still more disagreement uh, about some of these issues. And so uh, it's still a live fight. Um, that might not be true in the not too distant future. Um, but, uh, but for now, I think that's where a lot of those particular battles are, are taking place. Oh, that's, yeah, you're right. I never thought of it. You always hear about these things coming out of philosophy departments, like the English departments and the anthropology and the sociology, they've, they've given up that the train has left the station. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that's right. I mean, some of them, it's, it may be less likely they, they encounter some of those issues. Um, but, but for a lot of them, uh, this is, these are issues that are important to, uh, philosophical questions and philosophical inquiries that you would reasonably engage in. Um, and, and it's, Still, the case that there's division among philosophers about how to think about them. Um, yeah, so so you have both those kinds of problems in academia, though, of of self censorship, where people are afraid to say things, and so they uh, don't, um, and that can affect their scholarship, it can affect their teaching, it can affect all kinds of aspects of of what they do. Um, and you have just a homogeneity of views um, in academia um, in which there's just not widespread disagreement about a lot of things that uh, in larger society there is disagreement about. Um, and as a consequence, a lot of things just don't get talked about very much because everybody's on the same page. 
I mean, this flattening of the curriculum, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because if the students don't learn how to engage with the material on any sort of multidimensional level, they will continue to not be able to engage with it. Like you stop teaching it and it is going to remain unteachable. It's just, it's antithetical to the educational mission. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it can be, it can be, it can be challenging to, to get students to take uh, material seriously that they uh, disagree with um, so vehemently um, and that they're not used to. Um, but, but that's an important challenge. You still have to get them to engage it, I think, um, because otherwise uh, you, you do have exactly this problem, right? Of students who um, never encounter things they disagree with. As a consequence, they uh, don't understand uh, what the issues are, um, and they're not capable of engaging seriously with people they disagree with. Um, or with ideas um, that they that they disagree with, and and so they either shut down in the face of it, um, or they uh, react um, uh, very passionately to try to end the debate. Um, and and what you want instead in academia is to actually uh, challenge students, force them to think about hard ideas, force them to actually defend their arguments and defend uh, their instincts um, on on certain issues, um, but. But that's often a painful process. Students often don't really want to do that. Um, it can be unpleasant uh, from their perspective to be challenged um, uh, on things that they fundamentally believe in. Um, and so they they push back. And, and uh, I think we're in an environment now where that pushback uh, can be quite severe and, and it can be uh, great enough and that faculty think it's not worth um, inviting it. And moreover, we're in a situation now where when the students push back, um, the faculty uh, will not rally around uh, the professors that are trying to uh, put that challenging oh, material. Not in front publicly, of students. they won't. Sometimes they'll privately. Some, sometimes privately, but but it's but you know, but that's part of what leads people then to say, okay, well, it's just not worth it, right? Because they know that if students push back, no one's going to be in their corner helping to defend them on this. They're going to be all by themselves, um, taking all the flack. Uh, for it. And so it's easy to imagine that, you know, look, that's just not worth um, having that fight. I can be doing something else instead. Um, and one thing we hope to do as an organization is in part to emphasize to faculty, look, you're not, you're not all alone. You're not by yourself um, on these issues. And sometimes these are uh, fights and, and conversations and debates worth having. Yeah. I, I want to talk to you for, for a minute here about how this plays out in the world of deplatforming speakers, I mean, I assume that you know your organization. It's not here for you know comedians aren't going to run to you and say, "Well, you know, <laughs> I got booed off the stage at, at Oberlin." Right. But you know, one of the things that always frustrated me uh, about campus speakers over the last you know decade or so is that the conservatives coming to the campuses were like really bad examples. Yes. You know, they were the provocateurs. It was Ben Shapiro and. Back in the day, it was Milo Yiannopoulos. Why weren't more serious conservative speakers being brought in? Is it because the student groups who were making the decisions just wanted the low-hanging fruit? Or like, what do you make of that? I So I certainly agree that I think um, we had a lot of uh, conservative speakers in particular um, who were uh, particularly provocative, not intellectually all that interesting. And so 
uh, not doing much to advance the larger uh, discourse on campus. Uh, but, you know, frankly, you get the same thing on the left. Um, uh, and, and partly that does reflect the fact that students like being provocative. It's the nature of uh, people 18 to 22 or so uh, that... Uh, they want to be entertained. That, that partially know? they want to be entertained. Yeah. Uh, partially they want to uh, resist um, uh, those around them. And so I think for conservative students, for example, often feel like a beleaguered minority on college campuses and certainly in lots of places. Um, inviting somebody like Milo to campus is sometimes a way of sticking a thumb in the eye of all the people there giving them grief um, all through the rest of the academic year. Um, and so there's a certain attraction in being provocative, um, uh, especially when you're an embattled minority. I think it's also true that um, uh, some of those kind of speakers had a lot of organization and money behind them. And so there were concerted efforts to get them into college campuses. And so for students looking to have an outside speaker to come to campus, these were often presented as uh, freebies. Um, uh, somebody else was going to pay to bring Milo to campus. And so why not? Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, that's not necessarily a student's fault. That's a fault of of outside activists who uh, preferred to fund those kind of speakers and bring them to campus uh, rather than funding um, other speakers who are more reasonable. I am afraid also that on the political right, um, we've had a bit of a decline in the quality of um, intellectuals and public speakers who um, are on these circuits. Um, you know, when I was uh, an undergraduate in the 1980s, um, uh, we would have conservative speakers who would come to campus and uh, uh, they were controversial because the, they debated controversial things and they took controversial positions, but they were serious people with serious ideas and they were capable of debating and arguing about them. Um, and they were coming to campus precisely in order to present those ideas um, and, and defend them. Um, and and you would lose something if you didn't actually listen to them and and try to learn from them. Um, and and we still certainly have some people who are like that who come to college campuses from the right. Um, but I, I I do think they're sort of being um, overshadowed um, by other kinds of speakers, and they're they may not be as prominent or as many of them as as there once were. Um, yeah, I think one virtue of a place like Princeton um, on this front, besides the fact that we're fairly good about encouraging a larger free speech environment and emphasizing students what the expectations are about um, what we do here on a college campus. We also have a um, conservative center, the James Madison program that brings in outside speakers um, of uniformly high quality. Um, and so uh, they aren't the provocative entertainers that students sometimes want to see, um, but they're serious people with serious ideas who are willing to articulate them and defend them and, and can't simply be dismissed. And one virtue of that is it does emphasize to people, look, there are such things as conservatives right. with actual ideas they're willing to talk about. Um, and, and you can have actual conversations with them um, and learn something uh, from them. And, and if we had more of that happening on college campuses in general so that uh, students across the political spectrum uh, could look around and say, oh, well, you know, actually, there are smart, interesting conservatives I could actually learn from, even though I disagree with. Um, uh, that would be very useful. Um, but instead, then, for the most part, they don't see that. And, and so for them, conservatives are often sort of scary, ridiculous figures uh, that yeah. they don't have to take seriously. I mean, like with what happened with Charles Murray at Middlebury, I mean, that's a case where you wonder if, if the students had a wider bandwidth, 
in terms of what they could receive or process about a conservative speaker if they're only if if you know if they're only if their context was something other than Ben Shapiro they might be able to sort of understand what who Charles Murray was in all his uh you know he contains multitudes i mean this is right. a guy you know yes he's 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 known for probably you know i think it was like one sentence in in the book <laughs> the the bell curve which was actually richard hernstein's fault his co-author who uh did him the disservice of uh dying before the book came out but uh i'm not a charles murray apologist or anything but you know this he's a guy that was a champion of universal basic income before anybody was talking about it. And so like, that's the kind of detail that I, I, I wonder if those students would even be able to hear because he's just, they have put him in the Ben Shapiro bucket uh, really unfairly. Right. It's part of what I found very frustrating about the Charles Murray incident at Middlebury. It was the, the fact that these are students, for the most part, who um, admitted that they had never actually read any of Murray's work. Uh, well, they wouldn't. Are you they, kidding? They, 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 right. they, they couldn't. That's, right. they would, they, what they objected to is, is old work, right? They're reacting to what they heard about the bell curve, um, not that they would actually read the bell curve themselves, um, and had no interest in hearing what Murray was talking about then, which was economic inequality and, right. and polarization in America, right? Exactly themes, in fact, they probably are pretty sympathetic to if they would actually sit down and listen to it. Um, but 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 we have this sort of culture, I think, that has formed on college campuses, which is really unfortunate of just thinking uh, some people become taboo because of something that they said once. And so it doesn't matter what they're talking about now. It doesn't matter what they're writing. Uh, you're never allowed to uh, read or talk to or listen to these people ever again, uh, because at one point sometime they might have said something that that. Um, puts them on a blacklist. Um, and it's just extraordinarily anti-intellectual and, and unhelpful for what it is we ought to be trying to accomplish more, more generally. Um, and, and the Middlebury incident really seemed to sort of highlight the fact that, that um, uh, this is a pervasive feature of, of culture on too many, too many campuses. And it's, it's not unique to the Murray situation in which there's all kinds of people um, who effectively find themselves sidelined um, because you're just not allowed to talk to them or engage them anymore because they once said something that somebody regards as problematic. What do you think of someone like Jordan Peterson? Okay, here's a guy who is a provocateur, but he's also got some pretty serious, interesting things to say. Uh, but he he pushes the boundaries uh, in the interest of making a making his point uh, or something. Yeah, no, my sense is, um, I, so I'm certainly no Jordan Peterson expert, um, but, uh, you know, my sense is he's uh, uh, serious about ideas. He's willing to talk about ideas. He does certainly push some boundaries. He's sometimes provocative in his presentation, um, but but he also is appealing to a lot of um, students who um, um, are intrigued by those ideas, intrigued by his presentation of those ideas. And so... Um, you know, unlike somebody like Milo, who I think just doesn't have any ideas to offer and, and really isn't attempting to present them, somebody like Jordan Peterson is offering some serious ideas and um, and and is worth engaging. Um, and so it seems like a perfectly reasonable kind of person to be bringing to, to campuses um, precisely because he uh, demonstrates what it is we want from campus speakers, somebody that's willing to talk to students in ways they find interesting, um, is willing to present 
interesting and sometimes provocative ideas. Um, they're ideas worth thinking about, um, even if they're ideas you wind up rejecting or modifying or, or qualifying in, in various ways in, in the long run. Um, but yeah, but he's another one, of course, that is just um, shouted down and excluded from from lots of places. Well, and he appeared on the radar, on the mainstream radar, under the banner of free speech. He was talking about compelled speech. So this was um, a, a bill up in Canada that would have required people to use the preferred pronouns of non-gender conforming people. And his whole uh, premise was that uh, he would use the pronouns that people preferred, but he would not be compelled to do so. So how do you, as a free speech scholar, sort of metabolize that? <sighs> so, uh, you know, I think it is a difficult issue. I have uh, found myself um, a little befuddled by those who um, uh, regard this as a serious compelled speech um, uh, issue. Um, uh, if, if you're willing to uh, recognize uh, the the pronouns that the person wants to use in this context, um, it's a it's it's not obvious to me why it's a, a deep problem to um, insist that you use them. Um, it often strikes me as people who um, sort of make these sort of extravagant refusals to to use the pronouns people want to use are, are mostly just being uh, rude um, in doing so and um, uh, and not being particularly helpful. Um, and and the free speech issues at stake seem uh, relatively modest to me, but I don't think they're totally inconsequential. And in some contexts, they may actually be uh, more uh, more significant. Um, it is true that more broadly, part of what I've been frustrated by um, with sort of the uh, a lot of figures on the right, from Jordan Peterson to Milo to various other people, um, is is wanting to sort of grab the free speech cover um, uh, for what they're doing more generally and try to wrap themselves around uh, in that banner, um, sometimes quite justifiably, <laughs> because in fact their free speech is being suppressed in various ways, and they quite reasonably uh, want to um, appeal to free speech principles in order to protect their interests um, on that front. Um, but sometimes the the free speech label, I think, is just used as a way of excusing uh, uh, pretty bad behavior. And so I I think one thing I did not fully appreciate when I uh, first started speaking about these things and talking to students about these things is the extent to which um, the current generation of students, for example, when they are thinking about people asserting free speech rights, um, they're often thinking about internet trolls harassing people. And when you call them on it, they say, well, I've got free speech. Um, and so it becomes just the cover by which people want to engage in um, bad and annoying behavior right. Uh, right. rather than and 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 it denudes it of any sort of principled purpose <laughs> ultimately and so for a lot of students it's, it's not obvious why anyone would value such a thing as free speech if this yeah. is what we mean by it um, and so I, I find myself very frustrated by um, uh, some of the people who I think are primarily, uh, just trying to get a rise out of people and and trying to uh, provide cover for their own uh, rudeness um, uh, by uh, trying to wrap themselves in the free speech banner um, to the exclusion of 
of one, any recognition of sort of what better behavior would look like and what's actually more conducive of creating a better intellectual environment, um, but also uh, to the exclusion of trying to think about what it is free speech is, is for more generally and why we actually care about these principles. Yeah. And of course, the internet provides an enormous canvas for saying all these things that we weren't contending with 30 years ago. That kind of brings me to um, my last question, just as we sort of wrap things up here, looping back to where we started. So you and I are the same generation. I mean, we grew up, I think, you know, it was just a truism that freedom of speech was important. It wasn't a partisan issue. It was just what it meant, part of what it meant to be an American. Uh, you know, and I think we, we kind of just ran around saying what we wanted to partly, you know, we weren't, we, we didn't have Twitter. We, we were saying what we wanted to a limited audience most of the time. So I think it was a pretty simple concept. I don't know if, if you have children or you have young people, uh, in your life or, you know, in, in your family, do you find that, that they have a different concept of speech? Uh, than you do? And is it something that you that you talk with them about? I do. So I have a college-age daughter. Um, and so, uh, yes, she is. So she is, is sort of right smack in this demographic that I'm attempting to persuade uh, ought to care about free speech. <laughs> is she embarrassed of you? Will she not walk next to you on the sidewalk because of all this? Uh, well, of course, that that's true of all teenage daughters, isn't it? That uh, So there's certainly elements of being embarrassed by me. Uh, there's elements where she's been uh, much more fearful of my safety than I've been. And so where, where I, where she sort of imagines, wait, you're going to go in and talk about free speech and to that audience, uh, they're going to kill you. Um, and you know, and I think, uh, it's, I think it reflects the sort of experience she has of recognizing just how polarizing this topic is and, um, how in some ways unthinking the rejection of it is. And, and, uh, when you're talking at this point, when you're talking to undergraduate audiences about free speech, you're often talking to a hostile audience um, about why these things are valuable. And so, I start with that premise, and and I start by trying to explain: look, here's why you ought to care about this, um, uh, no matter what kind of um, preconceptions you might have about it. These are these are things that might actually matter. And and one thing about s- s- students, young people of that age, right? They, they have a very uh, short time horizon they're working with. Um, and so their context in which they're thinking about, well, what, who claims free speech rights? What does free speech mean? In what context is it being deployed? Um, is a very narrow one um, and a very specific one. And so they often are thinking about, well, the people who care about free speech appear to be internet trolls and uh, neo-Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so to some degree, it's important to sort of try to convey to them, well, you know, if, if it was the case that other people actually cared about free speech too, and it was really important to other political causes. Um, and, uh, and and try to explain why it is we actually came to have this kind of robust set of principles and, and why it actually matters and why they should have a stake in it, um, even if they're sometimes unhappy with particular individuals and, and their claims about free speech. Yeah, you know, it's also true, I think, uh, I, there's a lot of truth in what you just said about sort of the time when we were growing up and and what this looked like in the in the 80s, for example. 
but I, but I think I would also caution against ever thinking there was a golden age about these things. Um, uh, it's, it's easy to, uh, think that at some point, um, everyone was fully committed to free speech and, and, uh, we've, we've fallen away from that. Oh yeah. No, we had Tipper Gore, uh, putting labels on heavy metal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Remember? But I... it was coming from the right. I mean, that's what yes. I've had. I've had students shocked that it was ever the right wing that were being the purity police. Absolutely, like it's completely flipped. It's it's bizarre the extent to which it is flipped, but that but that's absolutely right. I mean, what I try to convey students in part is, look, it was it was like yesterday that that the political yeah. right accepted the idea that free speech was good, and like up until then, they were the ones who were trying to uh, suppress and censor people. Um, and it was the left that was aggressively trying to defend uh, freedom of speech and uh, and expanding it for their own protections. And you know, in part, I tend to find that students just find it incomprehensible to imagine anyone would want to suppress speech on the left, (laughs) for example, uh, such that would actually need protection um, against Mm -hmm. being suppressed. Right. Yeah. And again, it's one of these, uh, yeah, which was, you know, when I first started uh, going around giving talks on this, uh, one thing that was sort of convenient is I should have pointed the Trump administration and say, look, we have a sitting president who probably is not very sympathetic to a lot of the kind of speech and causes you care about. Is it really the case you would want him to be more empowered to be able to suppress speech he disagreed with? Um, mm. And yeah, but but there's just so much that they took for granted about um, uh, what's on the table and what's not on the table in terms of what might get suppressed. Um, it's sort of a failure of imagination, right? And you need to get them to um, uh, appreciate that there is a broader vulnerability here. Uh, and that's the reason why we need to protect these as universal principles in the first place. And it's the same with the Academic Freedom Alliance. That's part of what I think makes this work now is that we, we are now in a situation in which faculty across the board can look around and say, look, this isn't somebody else's problem. This is actually my problem, um, that my speech is vulnerable, my situation uh, might get threatened um, because of something I say. Um, and as a consequence now, I need to actually worry about this um, and 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 build a, and be part of a broader coalition trying to defend these principles. Um, I find it an encouraging sign that we have a lot of faculty who are willing to do that. It's possible to build those bridges and find that common ground. Um, it gives me a little optimism that will um, also ultimately be true uh, as we think about sort of their the younger people, the student, the current students, for example, um, that that will also be possible to persuade them that they too have a stake in this, and and they ought to uh, come around to trying to defend free speech rather than just uh, suppress it when they don't like it. Well, Keith, thank you so much for speaking with me about all of this on the unspeakable. Um, is there anything that that you want us to know uh, going out here, how people can reach you or anything we, we failed to touch on? Yeah, I, I really appreciate your having me. Um, uh, so I can be found on uh, Twitter um, at K.E. Whittington um, and uh, the Academic Freedom Alliance can be uh, found um, online, both website and it has its own Twitter feed as well. Um, and we are... Um, very welcoming of inquiries about what it is we're up to and offers to uh, help us uh, as we get going. Okay. Well, congratulations uh, with the project and um, best of luck. Thank you very much. That was my interview with Keith Whittington, chair of the recently launched Academic Freedom Alliance. 
Keith is a professor of politics at Princeton University. He writes about American constitutional law, politics, and history, and American political thought. He is the author of several books, including Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech. You can find the Academic Freedom Alliance at www.academicfreedom.org. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast, which you can hear on all the usual podcast places, as well as the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. To help support the show, please subscribe at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. This week, Thursday, April 1st, from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, I will be on Clubhouse, the social media app, talking with Angel Eduardo, who was my very popular guest on the March 7th edition of the podcast. We'll be continuing our conversation. If you're on Clubhouse, please drop into our room, which is called The Unspeakable is a Post-Identity World Possible. Again, that's this Thursday, April 1st, from 8 to 9.30 p.m. I think in the intro I didn't specify it's p.m. We're not doing this in the morning. Don't worry. In the meantime, I hope you'll join me next week for another super nuanced, unspeakable guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover. And so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.